Okay. It should work, even though we'll see if the camera moves. Should work. Plugged in. All right, let's see here. We're going to go ahead and get started with Psalm 119, verse 161. Psalm 119. Oh, Sergio says we're live, so no problem there. Thank you, Sergio. Let's see here. Shin, princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. Should be 10 or 15 or 20 or 100 times. But great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. Lord, I hope for your salvation and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies for all my ways are before you. All right, I got a couple of prayer requests here. Um, Steve B needs to get to, oh, Blazing. Steve Blazing, I wrote B because I ran out of space there. He needs to get to Cleveland Clinic this week. He's got heart problems, and he says probably open heart surgeries in store. So he wanted us to have a prayer for him about that. And then Freda, who you know is attended here for a long time but has always had health problems, she is given into strong medicines from hospice because she just can't take the pain anymore. And she says her suffering is beyond anything she has ever imagined possible. And she's just praying that the Lord will take her. And she asked us to join in that prayer, is that she could just go home. She says she has one more thing to do, which is to have a lawyer do some paperwork for her. And then she just wants to go. She's so, over at hospice? She's not at hospice. She's at her home, she said. But oh. she she's hospice is bringing her stuff. Yeah. And she's lost her caretaker as well because her caretaker is now have some medical problem and so she is alone but the people are bringing her the medicine and so uh freda she's just in real very sad shape so we want to keep her in our prayers and uh then barbara bunker i got a call from uh, a girl that's in a home up north and uh her mother fell backward and hit her head on the concrete and they're concerned they they took her in for something they haven't found anything wrong but they're still concerned that maybe there'll be some after effects of that so they want to pray for barbara bunker and then mark and becky and Mecky's, becky's daughter-in-law all need some prayers uh, they've had ongoing physical problems and a couple of trials in their lives and uh, so they just desperately are asking for prayer and their situations as well so we'll go ahead and go to the lord in prayer heavenly father we do uh thank you for the chance to come to you and we know that you hear every prayer you're on the throne and uh you are ruling and we have our mediator jesus who can lead us right back to you and so uh through him we pray these things and we uh, lift these people up and anybody else there are some prayers on some prayer lists that were sent to me over the past couple days and uh, we want to lift up those people that are mentioned there and lord uh, we just we thank you that we can do this but we're a little bit distressed over some of the issues that have come up and uh, haven't heard from Lothar lately, but I'm sure that uh, he probably needs some prayer. And Graham and Scotland as well. They both have ongoing issues, so we'll lift them up. And uh, Lord, we just ask that you uh, be with your people and be a comfort in their times of affliction. And especially when people like Fred are facing their mortality, that uh, she's strong in her faith with you. And we're thankful for that. And uh, we just uh, ask that uh, her prayer to you will be answered and that she'll be uh, given the comfort and rest that she needs in the loving arms of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.
Okay, we have uh, no gem today, so we'll just start reading the Bible here. We have, um, I better leave that there, I think. We have, uh, we're in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14. And this is, in case somebody's tuning in that's never been to a Bible study before, all we do is line by line, just one line at a time, whatever book we're in. And uh, uh, right now we're in 2 Corinthians 4, and uh, if we kind of speed it up, we'll be done with 2 Corinthians today. And if not, it might be a couple more weeks before we get through with that book. But uh, there's a couple ladies coming in right now. Okay, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14 says, Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Here it says, uh, Paul has been speaking of the death which is manifested in him and the apostles. They died in their lives for the sake of those they minister to. Eventually, actual death would overtake them, but even in this there is a sure and firm hope. Death is of no true consequence to a believer, and the apostles were completely certain of this knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus. That's a quote from Paul there. As apostles, they had seen the risen Lord, and they had seen his victory over death, and they knew that this too was promised to them. This is why they were so willing to die for Christ. Nothing could stop the inevitable inevitability of their resurrection just as he was resurrected. And, and you think about that. If Christ came out of the grave, and Paul details that in just great detail in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ came out of the grave and he has promised that we are going to come out of the grave, that we will, in fact, come out of the grave. There is nothing that can stop that. There is no power in this universe that can stop that from happening. And we will be granted those bodies because God has made a decree. His decrees are eternal. He is not like us where he says something and then changes his mind. Once he decrees something, it is done. Another good case for eternal salvation, which will be coming up in... Oh, I think three or four more weeks we've got one of our doctrine sermons on eternal salvation. But until we get there, um, as apostles, I said they had uh, uh, seen the risen Lord, and so they are assured of coming out of the grave as well. The power of God raised him up, and that same power would also raise them up. The same sentiment is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul says this to the people. 1 Corinthians, his first letter to them. In verse 14, he says, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. But, Romans 8, 11, too. Romans 8.11. Our Bible scholar wants us to go to Romans 8, verse 11. So we're going to go there and uh, we'll see what it says. Um, but if the spirit of, yes, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we've got this hope, and, you know, as sad as it is for people to die or to go through troubles and distresses, if they are in Christ, it's not that sad. I mean, it's hard for us as the recipients of it, but if we think about the glory that lies ahead, it's very temporary. And uh, as Paul says, our light and momentary afflictions, that's all they are. And in the end, we will be, oh, you know what I have here? Hang on a minute. But this promise was not just to the apostles who had firsthand knowledge of the Lord's work. It is true with all who believe. Together with the apostles, all who believe will be presented alive for all eternity by the power of God. Again, Paul writes of this in Romans 8.11. So Burke just preempted me a little bit, but one more paragraph. And I think you were reading my notes. Can you see that over here? Oh, my goodness. 
Same spirit. Yeah, same spirit. There you go. This wondrous moment is described in 1 Corinthians 15, which I was referring to a second ago, and 1 Thessalonians 4, which it's short enough. Well, we'll just go there right now really quickly. 1 Thessalonians 4 and read what uh, Paul says about our blessed hope in 1 Thessalonians, I mean 2 Thessalonians. Okay, there we are. It says, um, uh, verse 13, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brother, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Paul calls believers who died fallen asleep because they are still with the Lord and they are not gone. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, which is the whole point of being saved, as we did believe that, even so God will, he will, not maybe, he will bring those with him who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And he ends with saying, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Good you know, stuff there. Dr. McGee always said, brother, I don't want you to, to be uh, informed. And he said, you know, they were uh, ignorant about the fact, or he wouldn't have said that. That's right. <laughs> they had to have been ignorant about the fact if, if that's right. And probably what it is is they just forgot because, you know, Paul was so excited. He probably told him every time he came into the church, we have a hope. We have a hope. Anyway, take time today to read uh, 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, especially when you get down to about verse 45 or somewhere right in there, and just read to the end of the uh, chapter, and you'll find out all about the rapture and, and the hope that we have, and death is swallowed up in victory, but uh, it's, uh, you'll have confidence that they will be fulfilled exactly as written. Eternal life is guaranteed to all who have placed their trust in Christ Jesus. In life application, what fear should you have about death? If you have called on Christ, then show that your faith is more than just a superficial proclamation. Instead, if you face even the prospect of death, let the world know that death has no permanent authority over you. Christ is risen. You are in Christ. You too shall rise to eternal life. Good stuff. I mean, just it's our hope. I, you know, and I don't mean to get down on Christians that act, you know, mournful as they're punching their ticket, but. You know, it, it, you got to wonder. I want to be with Jesus. When my time comes, you're going to, I may be in pain, so you might not be, see the smile radiantly, but I'll have a smile on my face when I know I'm leaving here because it's far better where we're going. And, you know, I, I understand that pain is terrible. I, I don't even like having a toe pain, but, you know, whatever it is, when it comes to our mortality, we should be rejoicing, especially for, you know, our sister Freda. My heart breaks because she's in pain. She says, I. It's worse than I've ever had, but she's praising the Lord th through it. And I think that's that's what we all should have, that feeling in our hearts that we know that we're going to be with Christ. And so what we're going through was allowed by God, and we just have to accept it and move on from there. And, you know, when people ask me, well, what about suffering? What about... I always take them to King David. King David, at the end of his life, could not get warm. And you imagine, if there are things that we don't like in life. You might have a headache that won't go away. You might have you know, a, a pain in your arm that won't go away. King David could not get warm. And you think of one thing, at least to me, because I'm a Floridian, which would be debilitating beyond the extremist to never be able to get warm. And he couldn't. And so he had to live with it. And I say, if God did that, and then 400 years later, he's still saying, for the sake of my servant David, 
I'm going to protect Jerusalem. He loved David that much. Then, you know, it means that we're ordained to have pains and trials. Uh, I just was handed a piece of paper that says, do all to the glory of God. That was Erwin Lutzer. We've talked about it. Oh, Erwin Lutzer. Okay, 1 Corinthians 10, 31b, accept your situation as from the hand of God. That's what we have to do because it's our situation. Never substitute the lesser glory for the greater glory. Boy, does that sound right. Three, God is most glorified in us when we bear fruit in a desert. And four, what you do is not as important as the person for whom you do it. Mm. And five, you live your life with the assurance that heaven is coming. Lord, glorify yourself at my expense. Man, was that wonderful. I like that last part. Lord, glorify yourself at my expense. Um, uh, the professor that I sat under, it, uh, he was a missions pro professor, uh, great guy. He looked just like my grandfather. He wore the same sweaters. And he looked just like him. He had the same hand movements. And anyway, he, uh, he uh, had terrible, terrible knee pains. And he would say, you know, this is the devil. The Lord doesn't want these things for us, but he's allowed them. And this is the devil that causes these afflictions. And he says, Lord, I'll take this pain if you'll make sure that the devil gets a black eye because of it. And I thought, good job. So there you go. Um, let's see. Uh, 4.15 says, For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. As Erwin, Erwin Lutzer just said in that one thing to the glory of God. Okay, Paul's words here reflect the many trials that uh, the apostles had faced in which he named in verses 7 through 12. All of these things, and in fact, all things were for the sake of the hearers. The apostles worked in a unified way, forsaking their own selves in order to ensure that grace would abound to the many who received it. And, you know, it's not in the Bible, obviously, but if you read extra biblical extra biblical history about the apostles, it says that all of them were martyred for their faith with the exception of John, who was boiled in oil. He survived that ordeal and he died a natural death later. But um, all of these apostles were willing to give their lives for the gospel of Christ if the extra biblical record is correct, which there's no reason to assume it wasn't. But anyway, um, in turn, and at the reception of such abundant grace, the many would then show forth thanksgiving to the glory of God. The mental picture his words make show heartfelt appreciation by Paul that all of the many ordeals he and the other apostles faced were worth the effort. When his hearers glorified God through thanksgiving, the feeling of death working in them was worth the life working in their hearers. The words of 1 Corinthians 3 may have been on his mind as he conveyed these thoughts to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says in uh, verse 21, Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. As a side note, there are numerous ways that the translators have chosen to structure this particular verse. Is the word abound, I'll read it again so you can know what I'm talking about. We're in verse 15, it says, For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Is the word abound tied to grace, or is it tied to thanksgiving? What tense should the abound be rendered? Each decision changes the meaning a little bit slightly. However, despite the disagreements, the general idea remains. The apostles worked for the sake of others. 
grace was involved and shared. It permeated to their hearers, and thanksgiving was the result which glorified God. And you get verses like this in the Bible where it can go one way or it can go another, and at times it may be purposeful that when they write something, and we'll do it in English, where one thing can have two meanings, and we do that on purpose. It could be that these things happen for that reason. <laughs> life application. If you encounter difficulties in your life as you attempt to share the gospel, look at those trials as badges of merit when your efforts are successful. In the end, if a soul is saved and he in turn glorifies and thanks God for his salvation, then you have been a part of that. The final result is that all should be to the glory of God. As he is in control of all things, he has honored you with trials in order to perfect you while also bringing others to himself in the process. And we can use that with all kinds of other applications. We can use it with salvation. We can use it with, you know, building a school, or we could use it with whatever you do. You may just have a small part in it, but you are bringing glory to God through that as one small part. And so, uh, just kind of have that attitude in your mind that whatever is happening and whatever God has ordained in your life for you, you have been a, a good example is going down to the projects. You know, we got people that are here six months a year or, or three months a year and we go down to the projects and they may not see the fruit of the whole year, but the next year they come back and they are remembered by these people, aren't they? They, oh, you're back again. And that means that they have had enough of an impact where they became a part of those people's lives. And so whatever you do, it may just be a part of it, but you are having an effect which is ongoing and which is lasting for other people. And that's especially true with leading people to Jesus. Okay, 416, new paragraph. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Here Paul returns to the thought of the first verse of this chapter. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. In the ministry, they received mercy, and in this they were able to remain steadfast. To continue with that thought, after discussing the continuous challenge to their lives for the sake of the gospel ministry, Paul now says, even though our outward man is perishing, this is what he's been alluding to, especially in verses 7 through 11. They had faced many trials and death was always at hand, and yet the inward man, he says, is being renewed day by day. The physical body was continuously degrading and would eventually end, but the spiritual man in them was growing more in the likeness of Christ with each passing day. And so it was understood that the daily death they lived was only a temporary thing which was ultimately leading to eternal life. An analogy to hopefully make this understandable would be taking a massive amount of fill, which contains precious ore, and passing it through a purification process. As the fill, the outward man is taken away, the ore, the inward man, is coming more and more into focus. At first there was tons and tons of dirt. Eventually there is a pile of unrefined gold. From there the gold is placed in a furnace and it melts. Eventually, it is brought out and the impurities are skimmed off, and this is repeated until there is only the purest of gold left. Paul and the other apostles, and we who are in Christ, are being refined, even in a body which is impure and perishing with time. But inside of us, because of Christ, is something pure and wonderful. As we are renewed day by day, we are molded more and more into his image until only that which is perfect is left. 
And I can say that with absolute confidence that it's correct because I told you before that I used to mine gold up in Alaska. I did that in 1998, I think it was. I was there for a whole summer. And I talked about the process of getting the gold out of the riverbed. You're working underwater for eight hours a day or something. And so you're getting the gold by using this, this uh, dredge and it'll take a rock this big and push it off the back of the dredge. But you get these little grains of gold that are so small that you would think that they just float away and they land in the very first riffle of a riffle on the back of this thing that's about this big and that wide. And then the other stuff, maybe uh, old musket bullets or, um, you know, uh, uh, just anything that's kind of heavy would go a little bit further back, but the gold would be in that very first riffle. Mm -hmm. And so when you'd get out and you'd finish at the end of the day, you'd take this carpet that has all of this stuff in it and you'd shake it into a bucket. Now, we've talked about that first process before, but I don't think I ever mentioned the second process is that once you have that, you can see this gold that's in this, we used um, indoor outdoor carpeting, right? And that would catch it in there and then you'd have to put it in a bucket and shake it out really well and you know wash it out and you didn't want it to stay in the uh, carpet but when we were done at the end of the season we burned the carpet as well and so that would get any gold that was really stuck in there micro gold but you've got the gold it's now in a, a bucket that weighs it's a five gallon bucket and it weighs probably 50 or 60 or 70 pounds because there's so much heavy stuff in there all the heaviest stuff is in this bucket and it's almost impossible to carry up the uh the hill we had to go up and then what we would do after that it just looks like a bucket full of sand because all of the stuff is in there it's got uh, you know that the heavy iron and all that kind of stuff but we would spend another we just got done working eight or ten hours we'd spend another five to six hours and one spoonful at a time you would take and you would put it into this wheel and what we we had pressure from a stream that uh, was up the hill we had a pvc pipe that we made a uh, uh you know a, a line out of it and so it was under pressure and it was just it was like turning on a faucet in your house you had full pressure and we had a wheel and you would take a spoonful at a time and put it in this wheel and it would start spinning okay it, the water pressure would have it spin and then you could adjust the wheel tilt it this way or that and have it stand up and what would happen is that the heaviest gold there's a stream of water that would wash from the top of the uh wheel it was like a you know had little holes in it and it would wash down so it would wash out anything that wasn't gold it would push the because it had a, a lower specific uh gravity thank you and so the gold was heavy enough where it would go up this wheel in a circle until it finally came to a hole in the middle and would plop through it and into a uh, a pan behind it and so you would take one spoonful at a time and you would see all of this just looking like sand and all of a sudden you'd see this gold jumping out of it and you're purifying it little bit at a time. And so you've got this massive amount of work you've been doing during the day. That's the outward man. All day long, you're getting rid of the outward man. And then you still have the outward man in this bucket. And then you would eventually start one, one teaspoonful at a time, getting rid of this outward man until all there was was this beautiful gold that would be coming up and that would fall through this hole. And every once in a while, you get antsy and you'd look in the uh, pan behind the, uh, the wheel and it would just be lined with gold. And it was so beautiful. And that's even before it had been fired, before it had been purified or anything. It's just, but it was about 92 or 93% pure even then. It was very good quality gold that we got. But it was so exciting to see this river. You'd look over there and there's just, you know, water running and you got big boulders and you got, you know, you'd never expect it. 
And then you look behind where you're working after all day long and you see this pan full of gold and it would shimmer in this water. It was beautiful. But that's what's happening to us. I know that took a while to get to that point, but you understand is that that's what's happening with us if we will allow the Lord to purify us. And eventually all that gold would be taken up and it would be weighed and, you know, we divided up based on how many people were on this this uh, dredge or if it was one dredge, then you got all the gold and split it in half with the mine owner, whatever. But it was very exciting. And then from there, you could take it and, you know, have it refined and, you know, weighed and sell it, do whatever you want with it. But it was a good experience. But you, you could see what Paul was saying there, actually, if you made a, an example of it. It was just beautiful to see. Anyway, life application. Let us never tire of striving to learn about Christ. We never tired of wanting to get that gold out of that river, something that's infinitely of less value than your relationship with Christ. And yet we would spend all day and all night to get a little bit of gold, right? Here we are talking about Christ and le learning about Christ. Let us never tire of striving to learn about Christ, to pursue Christ, and to emulate Christ. In so doing, a marvelous change is taking place, which will have an eternal glory associated with it. The gold, you put it up, you have it made into a necklace, and then somebody uh, comes along and they grab it and they run and you lose your gold, or who knows what. It, it's fleeting. It's temporary. It's vanishing. But Christ will never flee from you. He will always be there for you, and he will always be there with you for all of eternity. So what what's the difference? A little bit of gold or whatever your priority is in life, or is it working to be a better Christian, to learn his word, to learn more about him? Okay, verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Using language which is filled with beautiful expressions and contrasts, Paul now explains the words of the previous verse concerning the perishing outward man and the renewed inward man. He tells the Corinthians that our light affliction is but for a moment. The idea of a light affliction is something that is troublesome without being overly burdensome. He's shrugging off the life of death, which they live with words that say, heck, this is just temporary and not that bad at all. In support of such a thought, he says that it is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Not only was the current state temporary and a merely light affliction, it was serving a good purpose towards a glorious end. In their trials, or think of our sister now that we talked about at the beginning here, in their trials, they were heading towards a time of magnificent wonder. The words he uses for far more exceeding is hyperbolin is hyperbolin, in excess unto excess. It is a superlative way of saying that what is a trial now can't even compare to the glory which lies ahead. It should be noted how Paul's words contrast the two clauses, moment with eternal, light with weight, and affliction with glory. Further, the word glory to the Hebrew mind of Paul would have a much higher meaning. It comes from another word meaning weightiness. If you know the word chavod uh, in Hebrew, it comes from the word chabed, which is heavy. And so the word chavod is glory. There's a heaviness, a weightiness to God that's almost like a burden on a person because he's so glorious. Okay, anyway, um, it comes from another word meaning weightiness. And so he was most likely thinking of the surpassing glory which would make any weight in this life seem like nothing at all. We have this great weight, this burden on us, 
It's nothing compared to what is coming ahead, the glory of God weighing down on us for all eternity, not in a bad way, but in a good way. Paul's words of this verse are a comfort of reassurance in a world which is filled with trials and hardships. Despite what we hear often, Christians are not intended to be exempt from difficulties. We're not saved to thrive in an earthly sense. We are saved to continue on in this veil of trials and tears until the day we truly thrive in our new heavenly abode. And life application on this one, if the world seems to be overly burdensome, remember that no matter what you face, it is incomprehensibly light in comparison to the majestic glory which lies ahead. Everything here is temporary. Everything is passing. But because of the promises of God in Christ, we have a permanent and eternal joy set before us. Let us not be downhearted, but instead let us try to look for a gracious hand of God in all things, even the trials which are directing us to that wondrous time ahead. Now, some of you are following along with uh, the Peter Bible studies that I'm doing right now, and some people have asked, why do I have such long life applications, whereas in Corinthians are only like one paragraph, and Peter it might be five or six or seven paragraphs. The reason why is because I've already done a commentary on Peter before, and that was the life applications now, because they weren't, they were just, you know, they weren't really commentaries. They were more uh, devotionals. And so what I did is that's why those Peter life applications are much longer now is because I just took what I had as a devotional before, and I'm just redoing it with a commentary now. So there you go with that. That's just in case you're wondering why I get a little windy on my uh, Peter commentaries every morning. There you go. Okay, 418. Uh, while we do not look at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This happens to be the last verse of this chapter, by the way, or yes, this chapter. In his words, Paul is looking ahead to the eternal weight of glory, which he mentioned in the preceding verse. The present light afflictions that they faced are not what he and the other apostles were focused on, but rather their eyes were steadily fixed on what lies ahead. These light afflictions and all of the rest of this temporary earthly life are the things which are seen. In contrast to them are the things which are not seen, as Paul says. The pulpit commentary describes it as, their words, the negative is the subject, subjective negative. It expresses not only the fact that now these things are not seen, but that it is their nature to be unseen by the bodily eyes. Okay, it's something that we can't even comprehend, in other words. And what they're looking to is a complete state of hope which resides in their spiritual mind's eye. This is the same expression that is given as the very definition of faith, where? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Very good. Okay, Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Again, Paul's words reflect the same sentiment that he wrote to those back in Romans chapter 8 and in verse 24. Romans 8, verse 24, he said, For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? It's an argument for, as I say quite often, us not having seen Jesus, us not having gone to heaven. If you bought the book about going to heaven, you probably should have saved your money. And if you haven't bought it yet, save your money. And it's just because if you've seen it, then that is not a hope. And 
we live by faith and not by sight. I don't mean to diminish people that believe those things, but I just don't accept it personally. I believe that God has revealed his word to us. It is all sufficient for our faith, Mm -hmm. our doctrine, and our practice. And because of that, we should not expect any further revelation. But people that disagree with that, that's fine. I don't argue with them. That's a-okay, but I'm not going to teach that. As a matter of fact, somebody uh, about, uh, was it? Yeah, this past week, I mentioned something. It might have been in the sermon. It might have been in the Bible study about that. And they came back and they said, well, we disagree, and here's why. And I said, that's fine. And I, I have no problem with that, but I cannot teach that because I don't believe that's what the Bible says. And this individual said, that's why you like you is because you stick to the word. So I was appreciative of that. There was no argumentation. There wasn't any, you're wrong, and you know I'm better than you or anything like that. But we just have a disagreement on it. But I, uh, uh, I, I believe that sticking to the word is appropriate. And the word says that we live by faith and not by sight. And the hope that is seen is no longer hope. And even Jesus said it to Thomas. He said, blessed are you, those, blessed are you who have seen, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So there's a reward for not having seen. If we've seen, then we need no reward and we will get none. So there you go with that. Okay, the things which are seen are those things which we encounter in this life. Be they good, be they evil, they are actually temporary. And so Paul questions the logic of focusing on that which is passing away. Instead, he would have us focus on the things which are not seen. This goes right back to the example of the gold. I could have spent the rest of my life up in Alaska and I could have made a lot of money, I'm sure, mining gold. But I came back and, you know, life eventually brought me to where I am now. And as much as I enjoyed it, I could go back and do that again, except the cold part of it. But as much as I enjoyed it, I much more enjoy preaching and telling people about Jesus. I much more do it. And as I was telling Burke earlier, I need to preach to myself every week as much as I need to preach to everybody else. It's not like I'm preaching to you because I'm somehow more knowing than you are, or I'm somehow better than you, or I'm, you know, more in whatever. I need the preaching that I do as much as you need it. And that's the fact. So anybody that puts any preacher on a pedestal is putting them in the wrong place. Okay. I I go home and I often think to myself, well, I wonder, you know, how the Lord could love me because of the things I think and do. I just do. And I, I, it's, I don't know if you all feel that way. If you look in the mirror and say, well, I'm a pretty good guy. Or if you look in the mirror and say, you know, I just don't deserve what I got. But I take the latter position. I'm very grateful that he's allowed me to teach and to preach. But uh, that when I do preach and I teach, it's as much for me as it is for anybody else. Be assured of that. Um, uh, Paul, yes, uh, I said that. Instead, he would have us focus on the things which are not seen, our spiritual selves. We should hope and even long for those things that Christ offers, which are eternal. And this is why we are to conduct ourselves in holiness and why we refrain from worrying about pains, ills, or persecutions. All of these things will pass. I'm not saying that they don't affect us. And when I have pains, I'm the biggest sissy in the world. Anybody that knows me personally knows that's true. Okay, Sergio just got through a week of misery with his flu and the Bridges did his too. I'm not trying to diminish pains there, but we shouldn't focus on those things. We should focus on the Lord even through those things. That's the point I'm trying to make. So please don't think I'm trying to in any way say that somebody that has pains or ills or persecutions, you know, isn't being holy or whatever. As long as they keep their mind on the fact that God is in control and that it will all be done someday, all of these things will pass and there is a far greater reward which lies ahead of us. So let us focus on those things. In life application, Right now, we don't actually see Jesus. 
And yet the Bible asks us to fix our eyes on Jesus. My favorite verse in the Bible, Hebrews 12, 2. This means that we are to look to the reward which lies ahead and to study and cherish his word now because it reveals those things to us. Let us fix our hearts, our thoughts, and our minds on Jesus. It does say, I think it's Hebrews 3, 1, our thoughts. I could be wrong, and I think it's 3, 1. Let me go there really quickly, and we'll just see. Um, I like fixing your eyes on Jesus, though, but it says, um, uh, uh, therefore, heavenly bother. Uh, no, that's not it. It's somewhere right in Hebrews 3. 12 2. No, that's 12 2 is uh, fix your eyes on Jesus. There's another one that says fix your thoughts on Jesus. And I'm looking for it right now and I'm not seeing it. I thought it was Hebrews 3 1, but it, it's not. Anyway, it does say that as well. I do fix my thoughts on Jesus. There's no doubt about it, but I want to fix my eyes on Jesus because I want to actually, in my mind's eye, see him. I don't want to just think about him. I want to actually see him. But uh, it does say that somewhere. If you find that, let me know. It's somewhere in Hebrews. But uh, anyway, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your mind on Jesus. Fix your heart on Jesus. But fix your eyes on Jesus as well. Okay, um, five one is where we're at now. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Man, is that good news. In the last verse, which ended chapter four, Paul spoke of the things that which were seen and which are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Building on that, he speaks words of absolute certainty, starting up the new chapter. The hope of the resurrection isn't a hoping hope, but rather a certain hope. For this reason, he begins with, for we know. Paul isn't hoping that the things he is speaking of will come to pass. He has every certainty that they will. And that certain hope is concerning our earthly house, this tent, as he says. This is in reference to the bodies we now possess. In other areas of the Bible, he equates them to, as we saw, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, earthen vessels. Here he equates them to a tent. Being a tent maker, his wording would be personal, both to him and to those who knew them. Uh, Peter speaks of his own tent. Pretty soon I've got to put off my tent, okay? He's speaking on the same level there. But there is more than just Paul's words on this. The Bible is replete with the imagery of the tent being a picture of our present body. In John 1.14, it says, I could quote it to you, but I, I will probably blow it by one or two words, so instead I'll read it. John 1.14, another one of my favorite verses. It used to be right on the side of my old truck. Um, and the word became flesh and dwelt. That word dwelt is the word tented. He tabernacled or tented among us. And we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There you go. The word dwelt is literally tabernacled or tented, as in a tent dwelling. This stems from the Feast of Tabernacles of the Old Testament, and it points to the dwelling of Christ in a human flesh as a tent. Paul uses this same terminology to describe our earthly house. In 1 Corinthians 15, especially verses 35 through 54, he writes about our earthly bodies and our coming heavenly bodies. It is this same concept which he speaks of now, noting that if the earthly is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And before I go on with the rest of the commentary, I'll take you to Revelation chapter 21. And it says there, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had 
passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the tent, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So the eternal tent that Christ dwells in will be right there in front of us. We will be dwelling in our own eternal tent along with the Lord. So there you go with that. And then continuing on, the word used to describe our earthly body being destroyed is katalite. It carries the literal idea of loosened down, appropriate to taking down a tent. That's Vincent's word studies. When our current tent is no longer acceptable for use, meaning at our death or at the rapture, God has an eternal house ready for us. It is wonderful news, and it is a sure guarantee because it is a part of God's word. Life application, we currently reside in temporary dwellings, which, you know, I get so upset at people that I read these things day after day after day. Elon Musk and all these people that are paying billions of dollars to try to live forever. They, they're looking for certain foods they can eat or certain, uh, uh, you know, they get cryo, you know, they get frozen and they get carried up until the time when man has figured all that out. The last thing I would want in this world would be to be stuck in this body forever. I'm I can't imagine another 20 years of it, much less eternity in this body. It breaks, it hurts, it, it, there's always something wrong with it. Even if you're always doing well and you're a happy guy all the time, when you wake up in the morning, you get out of bed, I know your back hurts, okay? This is, I, I would not want it. I, I think these people are looking for eternal life and it's sitting right here. I guarantee every one of them has a copy of this in their home and it's sitting there getting dust on it. Somebody gave it to them in their graduation or something. I mean, I know they have a copy of the Bible in their house and they've never picked it up and it's sitting right there, the words of life. Wow, whatever. I, I just, What's that? Fix your thoughts on Oh, NIV version. That's why this one wasn't reading the same as it. Thank you. Hebrews, I was right. Hebrews 3, 1, NIV says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. I, I thought that was it. I much prefer, though, to keep my, my eyes on Jesus. Because if my eyes are on Jesus, then my thoughts are also on Jesus. When you're fixed on something, that's where your thoughts are. So, But yes, thoughts is good, too. If you can't see or if you're uh, you know lying down at night, then fix your thoughts on Jesus. But man, I want my eyes always to be fo focused on the Lord. Okay, so the tent is uh, uh, going to be broken down or it's going to be left behind at the rapture, but we have something better. Life application, we currently reside in temporary dwellings which break down, get old, and eventually come to an end. But God promises us bodies that will never wear out. Can I help you, ma'am? It's not her fault today. Okay, my beautiful wife had uh, to go out with two ladies. One is visiting, and uh, they went out, and they did all kinds of fun stuff today. And then she, I know she went home and had to feed eight dogs. Is Zeki okay? He is? Okay, we got a dog that is he's within days of punching his little ticket, and I'm going to miss him a lot. So yeah, digging those holes is really tough when you lose one of your puppies. But he's been a good boy, and he's had a good life. So... Um, Speaking of that, our bodies will never wear out. We don't yet know what they will be like, but they are prepared by God to last forever. So they will be something marvelously wonderful. In your times of sickness or sadness, don't lose hope. Something far better lies ahead. Okay, 5-2.
For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. 4 builds upon verse 1 as Paul continues to show the state where we are in now and the anticipation of what lies ahead. In this, the words in this is speaking of the earthly house, which he calls a tent. Our current bodies are temporary and earthly, and because of this, they are susceptible to corruption and decay. In this state, Paul says, we groan. Paul uses this thought elsewhere, such as in Romans chapter 8. Boy, we've been in Romans 8 three times already today. Romans 8 verses 22 and 23, he says, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Our eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body of Romans 8 is the same idea as he says here, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is found from heaven. Paul is very consistent in the way he says things. The habitation that he speaks of is the Greek word ependuomai. It is found only here and in verse 4 of this chapter, and it indicates an outer covering. It is comparable to the ependutis, or outer garment, found in John 21.7. I think you know where I'm going with that. His, uh, he grabbed his outer garment. Let me take you there and read that. John 21, verse 7. It says, Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged, it, it plunged into the sea. So you've got the same basic idea here is this outer garment. The idea that we may draw from Paul, Paul's words is that our current tent is temporary and not what was originally intended for man. Instead, it is a part of the fallen creation and is actually in an unnatural state. Our true and intended state is from heaven and will be pure, eternal, and exceedingly glorious in comparison to what we now have. I'm going to take you back so you can kind of get a mental idea of this. Um, I don't think that the Russian translation is correct, but I'll read you this and I'll tell you what it says anyway. It says here, um, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, come on, Charlie. It says there, um, Then the Lord God said, Oh, no, let me go back. It's um, verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, Chava, because she was the mother of all living. Also, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. There are actually a couple different ways that can be interpreted. The standard uh, Western idea of that is that they were naked, they were in their bodies, and they felt shame and they covered themselves with fig leaves and they were insufficient. That was a picture of trying to reestablish the spiritual connection to God by their own works and it didn't work. God rejected that. But after he demonstrated faith by calling his wife's name Chava or life, indicating that he believed the promise that he had just spoken out in the curses, it says that he clothed them with garments of skin. Okay. The idea in the Western uh, mind is that he sacrificed an animal, something had to die in order for them to be clothed. And that is the proper theology. There's no doubt about it. That is carried on all the way through the Bible. You will see that something has to die. Blood has to be shed. The Lord initiates the process. 
the Lord gives the covering, etc., etc. That's the picture we're to see. But the Russian translation of that particular passage says something entirely different. He gave them garments of skin means that he actually put them in human form, the form that we are now, that they didn't have that originally. Okay, that's how they interpret it. It's not theologically matching the rest of the Bible, but it is possible as a translation, and the Russians have that in their mind. So when I first said the the uh, picture of Christ to Sergio, he's like, well, I never thought of that because the Russian says it differently, okay? But the point being made is that elsewhere in the Bible, as we're seeing right now with the hand of Paul, is that these are not natural bodies. And so whatever happened to Adam and Eve was not the original state, and they could have lived forever. So there was a change in them, but I would stick with the Western model on that because it fits the the typology of Christ the rest of the way through the Bible. But just so you know that that is another option based on taking verses elsewhere in the Bible and saying, see, we have these bodies that aren't correct, and therefore they had something that was correct. Whatever happened with their bodies, they did die, okay? But they were not going to die before that. They did have bodies that would not have worn out. That can be inferred because the Lord says, you know, if you eat of that on the day you do this, you shall surely die, implying that if they didn't do it, they would have continued live. But the Lord knew what was going to happen. The plan of redemption is perfect, and he is building a temple out of imperfect beings in order to give us perfect bodies that will never wear out, and we will never have a law where we can die again. Sin will never be imputed again. Thank God for Jesus and what he has done. Woohoo! Um, so here we go, um, John 21, 7, and um, it is significant that Peter's actions in John 21, 7 come after the resurrection of Christ. And they are specifically noted by John, thus indicating a picture for us to see. He was finishing, he was fishing in an unclothed state. But when he heard it was the Lord waiting for them, he put on his outer garment that he might not be naked any longer. It is a connection that will continue to be seen in the verses ahead by Paul. Life application. This body is not how we are supposed to be. It is failing and temporary. Instead, we have a far better body awaiting us. As this is so, we should, why should we degrade ourselves now with the temporary lusts of life when everything connected to it will perish? Let us act in holiness now as we await that which is truly holy and in which we will be clothed for eternity. Can't wait for that. Verse 3, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Okay, we could take this all the way back, and if you have not watched this sermon, or if you don't remember it, I would recommend that you go back. The very first thing after the giving of the Ten Commandments, you have to wonder, why would the Lord say this? The first thing he does after the giving of the Ten Commandments, it says there, it's only a few verses, starts in verse 18, and it goes through 26. Now the people <laughs> witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, actually, yeah, I'll read it, but the passage is actually from verse 22 to 26. It's very short, but we'll read from after the giving of the Ten Commandments. They heard the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that he, that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. And here it is. The first thing after the display of God on the Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. 
You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. Here it is, an earthen, an altar of earth. You shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you, and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. And here it is, verse 26. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Okay, that translation is lacking as they all are. Go watch the sermon and you'll understand what is being conveyed and why God gave that to them directly after the giving of the commandments. He brings up the idea of an earthen altar and steps and nakedness. Okay, there you go. It's an interesting passage. Okay, so we'll go on with the commentary here. Is uh, 5.3, I think I just read. Is that right? Yes. Having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. There are several things to consider here. Paul has been speaking of our earthly house, which he calls a tent. There is a time, except for those who are alive at the rapture, when we will die and that body will go into corruption. At that time, the soul will be naked. In other words, it will still exist, but it will be without a body. This is the same for every person that has died since Christ left this planet, and it's going to be that way unless the rapture happens during our life to us as well, okay? This is just the way of the world, okay? At that time, the soul will be naked. It will exist, but without a body. This verse then implies that we were intended to be a soul-body unity. Because if the soul without a body is naked, that means that it is in an unnatural state. Everybody see the logic there? Okay. For example, it says this in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Okay, that's Acts 2, 30 and 31. But the soul can also be speaking of a dead body, such as in Leviticus 22, verse 4. If there was no soul-body unity, then the killing of a body, meaning murder, would not be wrong. But it is, because when a man is murdered, he is deprived of his physical being, which is tied to his soul. And finally, the concept of a resurrection would be illogical if we were complete without a body. Instead, we would be naked, as Paul's words imply here. This is why Paul so carefully describes our resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Go back and read that. I've said it twice today. Again, in Job 10, Job speaks of his soul as a body that is animated, and he describes the various things which that imply. There and elsewhere in the Bible, we see that grief of the soul affects the body and that pains of the body distress the soul. Also, as a precedent in the Bible for an interim spiritual state without a real body, you can go to 1 Samuel 28 and see that even though Samuel had an appearance, and that he could speak and hear, he is clearly identified as, the word in Hebrew is Elohim, a god, but they translate it usually as spirit. That's in uh, 1 Samuel 28, 13. Let me take you there so you can see where that says. 1 Samuel 28. It says there, um, 
then the woman whom I shall bring up for you. And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit and Elohim ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, what is this form? And she said, an old man, this is a guy without a body. It's a soul body unity, okay, but he has no body. An old man coming up and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Okay, so there you go. In other words, he was a soul without a body, despite having the abilities such as seeing and hearing and speaking. All these tie in with what Paul has been speaking about and what he will continue to describe. We have a body now, which is temporary, and there will be a time when that is set aside because of death. However, our soul will live on. At some point, that unnatural state will be corrected when we will have, as Paul says, been clothed. This is the new glorified body that God has prepared for those who have received Jesus. At this time, we, Paul says, shall not be found naked. In fact, in 1 John 3, we are told that we shall be like. We will not be like Christ in the complete sense, but we will be like Christ. That is in 1 John 3, 2. Let me read that to you so you don't think I'm making it up. 1 John 3, verse 2. It says there, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed that we shall be what we shall be, but we shall know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That doesn't mean that we're going to be God participating in his Godhead or anything like that. That means that we will be like him. We will have an eternal body, etc., etc. We will be like him. He is forever a man. He is forever God. There's a difference between the two, but we will have the body that he possesses in some way. Okay? I don't want to get into all types of speculation on that. I don't know. The Bible's very sparse on what it says about it, but we will be like him. Okay? Life application taken as a whole. The lesson of the Bible is that what we are now is temporary and that it will go into corruption at our death. As a matter of fact, it goes into corruption before our death. I mean, I went out and cut a palm tree two days ago. Was it two days ago? Yes, right above Hitako's car because it's the first one to start dropping all of its stuff and it makes her car all black. So it's the first one I cut at the house every year. And of course, there's all kinds of cactus all over it because they bloom at night once a year and I love them so I won't take them down but cutting that tree hanging onto the cactus you can see I got cuts all over myself that was only a day ago but it was terrible the day I did it was just it was just bloody and you see how quickly we uh heal but there's a point where you can do too much damage and then it goes into corruption you have to have your arm cut off or your toe cut off or whatever so I'm just saying that we are in corrupt bodies and they get corrupt so if you don't take if you have diabetes for example if you don't take care of your diabetes, you will lose a toe. That's the first thing that happens with people that don't take care of their diabetes. After that, if they don't take care of their diabetes, they will lose their foot. And then if they don't take care of their diabetes, they will say, we've got to take off below the knee. And then they say, we've got to take off the leg, and they never leave the hospital after that. That is the last stop for them. And I know this because I've seen it several times with people in the projects. If you have diabetes, correct it. Okay, and you can correct your diabetes with your diet. I know somebody that's done it now. How many years? Four years. He's done it four years. He's corrected his diabetes with his diet. He's taken no insulin at all. He is taking care of himself. So if you want to continue to live and not be corrupt in your diabetes, take care of yourself. And it can be done. Okay, yes? Can't help it. 
we're made of minerals. Yes, we are. It's diabetes. Uh, but people haven't looked into chromium picolinate. Chromium picolinate, somebody said. Look into that if you have diabetes. I had, now, Tom has, I'm sure, never taken that, but he has been able to regulate it simply by eating properly. Okay, so there you go. It is possible, but I'm not telling you not to take your insulin. If you need it, take it, uh, these things. But what I'm saying is please take care of yourself because it is serious. If you let any part of your body go even a little bit out of whack, it can affect all of your body. And we know that now because they have what's called the coronavirus, which is a new strain of it in China, which is now spreading around the entire world. A couple days ago, there were a few people with it and there were a couple in the hospital and then people started to die. And now we've got people all over the world, tens of thousands of people because they got out of the city. They've got 13 million people right now in quarantine. Okay. This is the world we live in. It's a corrupt world and we just have to pay attention to what's going on around us. But we have a better hope, so don't don't let that uh, get you down. Don't be scared. If it happens, it happens. There's nothing we can do about it, okay? But um, we shall not be uh, found uh, naked. We'll be like Jesus, taking us a whole. The lesson of the Bible is we're in temporary dwellings and that we will go into corruption at our death. I know I read this. I'm just repeating it. But our soul will live on in an unintended state. However, God will give us an eternal body. This is what Paul tells us. It is assured at some point. It will never wear out. It will be glorious. Don't let the pains of this life wear out you, wear you out to the state of hopelessness. And don't let the thought of death consume you with fear. Instead, know that God has everything under control and what he has planned for us will be glorious. Thank God for Jesus Christ who gives us this promise, who has taken care of us to the point where we know that these things are sure. I know that Death is terrible. Like I said, even with your, it's a pet. That's all it is. It's a pet, but we get attached to them. We love them. And when they die, it breaks our hearts. How much more when a human being that is created in God's image dies apart from Jesus. So we have a responsibility to hand out tracts, to talk to people about Jesus, to be responsible with our actions in front of other people and so on. Okay. Because people really are perishing. It's, we, we just got to, we got to remember that daily. We've got to remember that people are perishing. Okay, uh, five, four. For we who are in this tent, meaning this body grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, which is what he just said, we're found naked because we have no body, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Paul continues to expand upon the same thought which he has been speaking about since verse one. We who are in this tent, his words, is speaking of all saved believers in Christ who are still alive. Those who have died have put off their current tent, and they're waiting for the call of the resurrection, which is seen in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. We read it earlier. There it says, the dead in Christ will rise first. However, those who are still alive, as he says, groan, being burdened. This is our current state. We have pains. We have trials. We know that. Because of Christ, there is something far better which lies ahead. But this isn't just Christians. Paul says in Romans 8.22, which I think we've already read twice, but I'm going to read it again anyway. Romans 8.22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. However, Though all creation groans, for the believer there is the sure hope of something better ahead. We look to the resurrection and we anticipate our time ahead 
when we shall also participate in it. Like I said, Elon Musk and all these people are trying to have this life go on. They're trying to have this body go on. I don't want this body to go on. I want what Paul is talking about right here. Now we struggle in this life because our body is temporary and it is corrupt. Again, Paul says this in Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Therefore, our groaning is in hope, as he says, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. To be unclothed means to die and to be rid, rid of this corrupt body. Someone without the hope of Jesus may desire this state. For example, someone who commits suicide may simply want to be done with life. In the ending of their life, their groaning will hopefully end. But in Christ, there is more than just the hope of ending pain. Rather, there is the hope of being further clothed. We look, to, we look forward to a new life and a new body that is far better than what we possess. Because Jesus has gone before us and because we are promised to be like him in his resurrection, that we desire that additional state rather than to just put off this mortal, corruptible body. This is the assured difference between those who do not know Christ and those who do. We have the solid hope, as Paul says, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. This corresponds perfectly with Paul's words of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54. Wonderful, wonderful words in this particular verse. It says, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. For Christians, the path doesn't end at death. Instead, it continues on with new and everlasting garments. And Paul's words here imply that he believed that he may actually be alive when the Lord returned. Two points to consider on that are, one, even since the earliest times in the church, there was the eager anticipation of the Lord's return. People denied the doctrine of imminency. Paul didn't. He was looking for it. Two, the concept of a rapture was understood, not misunderstood, by those who waited for their change. Paul's words clearly show that this event was expected by believers, even back then. Thus, it was not a late invention which came through dispensational theologians such as John Darby. People love to pick on John Darby. They say all kinds of bad things about him. They make up lies about his past. They make up lies about his daughter. They make up lies about the school he went to and the color of his hair and how many teeth he had. Everything that they could pick on that guy about, they do because they say John Darby made up dispensationalism. It's a doctrine of the devil and there's no such thing as the rapture and blah, 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 blah. And I always say, John Darby didn't make up dispensationalism. God did. And Paul wrote about it. That's, that's who did. It is right there as clear as crystal in the Bible if you simply open it and read it. I'm not denying covenants. There are covenants all through the Bible, but that is only a part of what God is doing. Dispensations are correct. They are accurate, and they're seen even in the menorah, the lampstand that was in the uh, tabernacle. They clearly show us the dispensations of time, as do many other things in the Old Testament pictures and typology of Christ, okay? Dispensationalism is correct, and if you disagree with that, I'd feel bad for you because you, you know, people say, well, if people don't believe in the rapture, are they going to be raptured? And my answer is always the same: yes, they are. 
they'll just be more surprised than we are. Absolutely. As a final note, Paul's words here closely resemble the apocryphal writings of the wisdom of Solomon, which says, for a perishable body, Excuse me, for a perishable body weighs down the soul, and this earthly tent burdens the thoughtful mind. That's the wisdom of Solomon 915. It is believed by some that Apollos, Paul's friend mentioned in Acts 1 Corinthians and Titus, may have been the author of this particular book, The Wisdom of Solomon. That's just speculation. We don't know that for certain. Life application. We have a sure hope of a better eternal body, which is superior in all ways to the ones that we, the one that we now have. Be content to live this life knowing that whatever you are facing in physical trials, you will never face them again when you are given your new and eternal home. God has lovingly prepared something wonderful for you. Wonderful stuff there. Okay, 5-5. Five, five. Do we have time? Yes, we have lots of time. Five, five. My friend asked me, I get this, a couple people have asked me, but my friend emailed me a day ago and he said, can you tell me what uh, verses you're going to be covering today? And I said, all depends on how much I talk. If I stop and I start talking about mining gold or something, we might not get many done. And so uh, I, I never know what verses, and I know it frustrates the guy that does the website. He, every, when we put up a sermon or when we put up a, a Bible study or anything, uh, he does a podcast for it. And he has it done like within seconds of me uploading it and it's uploaded on YouTube. He gets a notification and he does the uh, podcast. He's, he's the most efficient guy I think I've ever known in my life. But he emails me the same question every week. What verse and uh, uh, title are you doing for the study today? I have no idea. I have to tell him, every, I don't know. This is seat of the pants stuff here. I got my notes, but it all depends on how long we're going. So I apologize to people that I can't give you that information. But all of the study notes are on the internet. You can look at them in advance or you can follow along on the internet. Or if you'd rather have a copy of it, you know, uh, uh, my original copy, just let me know. Email me and I'll email you the whole file of 1 Corinthians or whatever book of the Bible you want. I'll give you my stuff. One guy in Africa recently emailed and he said, um, uh, he's in a, he's a preacher over there. I think he's in Ghana. Anyway, I don't remember. Uh, nice guy, uh, Jonathan Armitai. If you're listening, Jonathan, hello. Um, and he said, um, I'd like copies of your work so that I can have it for my files. And I said, well, what do you want? He said, everything. And I spent hours sending him everything. And he got everything. And then he said, would you add me onto your daily list, the uh, devotional I do? So he's on there and he gets the sermon before I publish it every week. And I, man, people that want that, you think, oh, I'd be secretive over it. No way. I'm happy that people want that. I'm happy. You know what the Lord provided? He gave it. It's got to go on. It's, please, if you want the notes and you can't get them off the internet because they're on individual pages, you want it all on one document, let me know. Anyway, five, five. Um, let's see here. Uh, now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. It's truly amazing how many believers in Christ, and unfortunately pastors and theologians in particular, can't simply read these words and accept them at face value. Let me read it again. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Everybody got that? If I say I guarantee this to you, what does that mean? It, it's going to happen. It is going to happen. Now, because I can die, it might not happen. Because I might go bankrupt, it might not happen. Because my computer might break, it might not happen. None of those things are ever going to happen to God. 
okay? Or I might just be a liar, and it's not going to happen. But God will not lie. He does not go bankrupt. He does not have a car that's going to break down or a computer that will misfire or whatever you call it, okay? Please believe God and take him at his word. Because of this, there is much stress and anxiety among many who have received Christ as Lord and Savior. The reason for this will be detailed as we go along. First, however, we look to Paul's words. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. This is speaking of what he said in the previous verse, which spoke of our being clothed in our heavenly body. As he said, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. It is God who prepared this wondrous abode for each person who is called out to Jesus Christ in faith. And further, it is God who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. It can't be certain what part of the word guarantee is misunderstood by so many, but apparently the word isn't clear enough to avoid confusion. The word translated here as guarantee is aravon. It is a transliteration from the Hebrew word eravon, which is used three times in the Old Testament, all in... Anybody know where? Yes, Genesis 38. Please remember that. That is the story of Judah and Tamar, and he gave her, he went into her, as you know, she had her face covered, a picture of something. He gave her three things. He gave her his signet cord and staff. That is the Erevon. It's the pledge. And she held on to that, and he said that he is going to come and have her burned because she has committed adultery and or harlotry. And uh, what did she do? She sent it back to him, and she said, the one who's these belong to, that's the one who got me pregnant. And he realized, oh, she's more righteous than I. Go watch that sermon if you want to know what's being spoken of, and it will lead you into understanding why salvation is eternal right here in this particular. Because even without that passage, we know that salvation is eternal simply because God does not lie. He's given us a guarantee, but it's the word eravon. The Greek. What? Ephesians 1. I'm probably. Yes, I'm going to say it in just a second here. The Greek word is found three times in the New Testament as well. Three times in the Old, three times in the New. It's the same word carried over from the Hebrew, all from Paul's hand in 2 Corinthians 1 22, 2 Corinthians 5 5, which we're in right now in Ephesians 1 14. It means an earnest, earnest money a large part of the payment given in advance as a security that the whole will be paid afterwards. More specifically, Help's Word Study says that it is an installment, a deposit, meaning a down payment, which guarantees the balance, meaning the full purchase price. When it says that Christ redeemed us, it doesn't mean that Christ redeemed us partially. He redeemed us fully. We're partially redeemed at this time. We're going to be fully redeemed when we are up there. But he has redeemed us. It is done. God's decrees are unconditional. I'm going to talk about that in an upcoming sermon. Unconditional. If you understand the nature of God, you will never make this error. If you don't understand the nature of God, you will make all kinds of theological errors, especially in God's decrees. When Paul said to Israel that, I will never leave you, in Leviticus 26, now, he said, you will be punished, you will be this and that, but he will never, ever leave them. I'm misquoting this, but you understand he said this. He told them, forever you are my people. Okay? Does that mean that every Jew is saved? No, because it is a corporate promise. The, the promise of God was to corporate Israel, and they are a template for the individual salvation. 
If you understand that, then you will understand God has never rejected Israel and he will never reject Israel. People will be lost out of Israel because they rejected him, but he will never reject them as a corporate body because his decrees are unconditional. And when he says to us, this is my guarantee to you, that means that he has spoken and it cannot be undone. I don't care what somebody does, they will not lose their salvation. It doesn't matter what they do. People send me, well, what if they walk away from Jesus? Guess what it says in uh, 2 Timothy? There are people that walked away from Jesus and Paul uses the same term for them as he does for the guy in 1 Corinthians 5, okay? He will never turn back on what he has spoken when he saved somebody, even if they've turned their back on him. I don't care what it is. You are saved and you are saved eternally, or it is not the God of the Bible, because when he speaks, his word is unconditional as a covenant. He's not like us in any way, shape, or form, but we try to take our image of God and put it, what's in our mind, on him, and it doesn't work that way. We have to understand his nature. It's the full purchase price. What Paul means in each instance of its use is that at the moment that we receive Jesus Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It is a guarantee that we have been saved. And as Burke said, he knew I was going to go there. It's because I am going to go there. It's in Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. And I just want to substantiate what I just said to you, that the moment you believe, it says there in verse 13, in him you also trusted. I put my faith in Christ. After you heard the word of truth, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Okay. The gospel of your salvation okay, which is 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 1 through uh, 5, right in that area, 3 and 4 is actually where it's at, in whom also, having believed, the moment you believe, here it is, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the Erevon, the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. It's not to our glory. It's not because we are waffling in our lives because we fail God every time we wake up and walk out into the world. It's because it is to his glory. If it was otherwise, maybe we could be lost, but it is to his glory. His word is unconditional. It will never happen. Okay. So it is an absolute guarantee. And because it's a guarantee that we have been saved because of this, it is beyond the pale that many seminaries, churches, pastors, and teachers claim that a person can lose his salvation. If this is true, then the guarantee that was made wasn't worth the seal which accompanied it. In other words, it calls into question the very truthfulness of God. The doctrine which teaches that a person can lose his salvation calls into question the reliability of God, the truthfulness of his word, and it completely diminishes the work which Christ wrought on behalf of those who have believed. Further, it is bondage to those who are held in this misguided belief because they can never know just how good they need to be in order to remain saved. It becomes a self-salvation once again. It's what it always comes back to is self-saving self. Thus, their pastor can wield control over them as he practices his flawed theology, causing them unnecessary anxiety and harm life application. Jesus Christ saves. When he saves, he is fully capable of ensuring we remain saved despite ourselves. Don't call God's word into question because of your personal feelings. He knew you would fail and counted that into the equation when he first saved you. He knows the end from the beginning. God knows everything and he factored all of it in, what you would do and when you would do it. 
It's just the way it is. Okay, five, six. So we are always confident, not sometimes confident, not possibly maybe we're saved. Maybe he's going to take us home. No, he says we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Verse six is an unfinished sentence in the Greek. It picks up with the same verb, are confident, in verse 8 with its continuing thought, while in verse 7, is, verse 7 is bracketed between the two. The Greek word for words for are confident shows the unswerving nature of those who have a firm hope in what lies ahead for the believer. Paul and the apostles had such confidence and they passed it on. He says, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. In this statement, he uses two words which are only found in this chapter. The first is endemeo. It is used three times in verses 6, 8, and 9. It means properly be present at home as amongst one's own type or kindred related people. Okay? And the second word is ekdemeo. It is also used only three times in the same verses, 6, 8, and 9. It means being absent and portrays believers who are still alive as being away from home, meaning heaven, because still living in a physical mortal body. While we are in this body, we are not in our true homeland. With our calling on Jesus Christ, we have become adopted sons of God. We have a new heavenly home which we belong to. However, until we die or are raptured up, we are living away from this true home, being absent from the Lord. At some point, we will be reunited in our true home, but until then, we are to be confident that we are where we should be. The Lord will determine when our homecoming will be. Mm. Yes, it's just coming whenever it's coming, and we just have to live through this life and just continue pressing on through it. Life application, although we live in this world, we are not truly of this world. This is why Christians often are often perceived as a threat or a nuisance. When we truly believe that this isn't our home and act accordingly, then we demonstrate that we are strangers to those around us. People generally shun strangers in one way or another. And as the world continues to push God out of their lives, we can only expect to be further alienated from those around us. So let us cling fast to the truth that we have a better heavenly home which awaits us. And I think, yes, I'm going to have to stop there because I don't want to... Wait, maybe we can get one more in. We're going to try one more. 5-7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. That's a good verse to end on anyway. The word, build, the word for builds upon what was just said. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. As we are absent from the Lord, our walk is different than it would be if we were in his presence. The word walk, everybody know this, the word walk denotes our conduct in this life. It's used all the way through the New Testament. Peter uses it, Paul uses it. It's simply a way of saying that it is our walk, it's our, our conduct as we live in this life. It is a metaphor used to indicate the things we do and how we do them. This walk for the Christian is a walk of faith. We have been saved by Christ and therefore the conduct of our lives is to be for him emulating him, telling others about him, anticipating our being gathered to him, and so on. But as he said in the previous verse, at this time we are absent from the Lord. 
And because of this, our walk is entirely one of faith. It is not by sight. The word sight doesn't mean the active sense of vision. Rather, it means appearance. The word faith, then, is being contrasted with the time when we actually will behold Jesus and our new heavenly home. We have never seen him, and we have never experienced heaven, and so our walk in this life is only in anticipation of those things. It is entirely a walk of faith. As the author of Hebrews says, I'll take you there and read it one more time today. Hebrews 11, verse 1, which says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's right. But in this walk of faith is a blessing in and of itself. In fact, the next verse in Hebrews says, For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. That's Hebrews 11.2. We obtain a good testimony through walking in faith. Jesus confirmed this to the disciples when addressing Thomas. Oh, I've already cited it in John 20.29, 20, where he said, Blessed are you who have seen, but blessed are those who believe and have not seen. That's right, John 20, 29. So, life application and we are done. Lots of people have claimed to have seen Jesus, and lots of people have claimed to have gone to heaven. This is contrary to what the Bible teaches. If someone has experienced one of these things, then their walk is no longer of faith, and so we must decide to either believe the Bible or believe them. Though many have seemed convincing about their experiencing these things, it is better that we reject their stories and accept that we do, in fact, live by faith and not by sight. Okay, I won't argue with people over that. I have people that I know personally here in Sarasota that have had conversations with Jesus, but I just don't believe it. And they know I don't believe it, and that's fine. That's, you know, I don't want to argue with people over those things, but we live by faith and not by sight. And I don't think that we need to have a vision of Jesus in any way, shape, or form to have a walk with him. As long as we're in his word, which is where we're supposed to be, that's why he's given it to us, then we should be content with that. But whatever. Anyway, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful marvel of Jesus Christ our Lord and the fact that he actually did come out of the grave. How, how amazing is that? Every time that we think about it, it's very hard for us to get our minds around it because we know this is a world of death. We're used to seeing death, and when it happens, it shakes us and it, it harms our hearts and our feelings. But in fact, we know that this is not the way it's supposed to be and that Christ really did come out of the grave, and so we will too. We have that hope and help us to be confident in it at all times, even when things are bad, even when pains come, help us to be confident in that one thing. And Lord, give us just enough strength to praise you, and I know with that you will be satisfied and we will be blessed. Just enough strength to praise you through these difficult times. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your precious promises to us. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.